a seat. Grab a seat. Good to have you all. I, I want to, before we launch into um, to the message, I, I do want, there's, there's one thing I'm excited about here a lot, and it's, it's a little brochure on the desk called the Spiritual Formation Retreats. Some of you may not know, but I've, I've kind of re-entered a period of study. Uh, for the next three years, I'm actually working uh, with the seminary in Langley a bit, and, and I'm trying to develop these spiritual formation retreats, because one of the things I realize is in the church we communicate a lot of information, but sometimes, even though we know the truth, we don't actually do the truth. Anybody feel that way? So one of the things I'm trying to do with these retreats, that we're going to do them over the next few years, is take a group of 12 or maybe at the most 15 people and focus in on some what we call core ideas that we believe in, things that we find really fundamental, but do it in a way that actually hopefully helps us to live it out more on a regular basis. So you can find out the information there. There's four retreats a year. They're out, these are out in the foyer, but I'm, I'm excited about that, and I want you to, to invite you along for that process. Uh, we're uh, in the book of Judges today, verse, chapter 13. We're, we've moved into the season we call Foundations. Um, if you haven't got one of these little lectionary guides from out there, this this is a system that we've put together that really in four years takes us through all the scripture, uh, which is why I end up preaching on Judges, because it's an interesting book to say the least. Um, and in Foundations, we, last, last December we were in Foundations up until Advent, and we left the story off with the people of Israel perched on the edge of the Promised Land, and Joshua was going to lead them in. Now, I'm skipping a bit of it because four years ago, we spent almost the whole foundations on the, the coming into the promised land. So I'm skipping ahead to Judges 13. If you're reading along, I'm ahead of you, uh, but, but you'll catch up with me and I'll catch up with you and it'll all work out. Am I good now? There? Am I there? Yep. Woo. Okay, I'm back. So good morning. Welcome to... Just kidding. There's this thing I'm really excited about. Um, what happens is after they settle in the promised land, which is the book of Joshua, if you're reading along with the lectionary, you're going through that now, they get settled and they start this downward spiral that is the book of Judges, which is really, Judges is some of the most unique reading in the entire Bible. If you read these stories that go on, Samson, who we're going to spend the next four weeks on, is the final judge, the final ruler in this cycle that goes on in the book of Judges. And we pick up the story that leads up to his birth in Judges chapter 13. So let me just read Judges 13, and then we'll dig in a little bit. Again, the Israelites, you can hear that cycle there, again the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, so the Lord delivered them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. And a certain man of Zorah, <coughs> excuse me, named Manoah, from the clan of the Danites, had a wife who was sterile and remained childless. And the angel of the Lord appeared to her and said, you are sterile and childless, but you are going to conceive and have a son. Now see to it that you drink no wine or other fermented drink and that you do not eat anything unclean because you will conceive and give birth to a son. No razor may be used on his head because the boy is to be a Nazarite set apart to God from birth, and he will begin the deliverance of Israel from the hands of the Philistines. Then the woman went to her husband and told him, a man of God came to me. He looked like an angel of God, very awesome. I didn't ask him where he came from. 
He didn't tell me his name, but he said to me, you will conceive and give birth to a son. Now then, drink no wine or other fermented drink and do not eat anything unclean because the boy will be a Nazarite of God from birth until, until the day of his death. And then Manoah prayed to the Lord, O Lord, I beg you, let the man of God you sent to us come again to teach us how to bring up the boy who is to be born. And God heard Manoah, and the angel of God came again to the woman while she was out in the field. But her husband Manoah was not with her. And the woman hurried to tell her husband, he's here, the man who appeared to me the other day. So Manoah got up and he followed his wife. And when he came to the man, he said, are you the one who talked to my wife? I love that, like, duh. <laughs> I am, he said. And so Manoah asked him, when your words are fulfilled, what is to be the rule for the boy's life and work? In other words, how do we raise this kid? And the angel of the Lord answered, your wife must do all that I have told her. She must not eat anything that comes from the grapevine or drink any wine or other fermented drink, nor eat anything unclean. She must do everything I have commanded her. And Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, we would like you to stay until we prepare a young goat for you. The angel of the Lord replied, even though you detain me, I will not eat any of your food. But if you prepare a burnt offering, offer it to the Lord. Manoah did not realize that this was the angel of the Lord. Now there's a Important part of that phrase there. We'll get to that. Then Manoah inquired of the angel of the Lord, what is your name so that we may honor you when your word comes true? And he replied, why do you ask my name? It's beyond understanding. And then Manoah took a young goat together with the grain offering and sacrificed it on a rock to the Lord. And the Lord did an amazing thing while Manoah and his wife watched as the flame blazed up from the altar toward heaven. The angel of the Lord ascended in the flame. And seeing this, Manoah and his wife fell with their faces to the ground. And when the angel of the Lord did not show himself again to Manoah and his wife, Manoah realized that it was the angel of the Lord. We are doomed to die, he said. He's not dramatic at all. He said to his wife, we have seen God. But his wife answered, if the Lord had meant to kill us, he would have not accepted a burnt offering and a green offering from our hands, nor shown us all these things, or now told us this. And the woman gave birth to a boy and named him Samson. He grew and the Lord blessed him and the spirit of the Lord began to stir in him while he was in Mahanadan between Zorah and Eshtol. Now what you see at the beginning of the chapter here is a common phrase in the book of Judges. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And here we go again. This is the story of the Judges over and over. As you read the book, you're going to see this cycle that, that goes. The, the, the story today leads up to the birth of Samson, who's probably, most people have heard of Samson, famous or infamous, the guy with big muscles, supposedly, that you couldn't cut his hair. We don't know that he had big muscles. We know he was strong. I'm assuming he did. Um, but we're picking up the text late into what I've mentioned is the cycle of the judges. Seven times in the book of Judges, the people repeat this cycle. They're, they're listening to God, and then they walk away. They become disobedient. And God raises up an enemy to oppress them. And when they're oppressed, they call out, Oh God, we're sorry, forgive us. And then he raises up a judge, a leader, who sets them free. And the people say, Oh yeah, it's all good again, until the cycle starts again. And it goes around and around seven times. This is the seventh time they're going through this cycle. Samson is the bottom. Really, every time they go around, they go lower and lower and lower. If you read through the book, you'll see that. In Judges 17, 6, it describes the whole book. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. It, it's, it's a, a free-for-all. Everybody's doing what they want to do. And Samson was the last judge. And, and it really, like I say, this is the bottom of the barrel. 
I called the, the series The People God Uses, and we're going to look at Samson, who's a pretty bad example, but God still uses him. Gives me a little bit of hope. You ever messed up like Samson? Yes, we've all made mistakes. We're also going to look at Samuel in the, in the six weeks after that, who did better but still had his own issues too. But I want us to look at the people God uses. And, and in Samson's pre-birth story, we see these extraordinary interactions with ordinary people. I love this story. Maybe you picked it up in the tone of my voice as I was reading. There's a woman who is barren, sterile, I love it when the first thing the Lord says to you is you are sterile and childless. You know, that's not really politically correct. When he shows up and says what she knows is true. But the, the interesting thing is she, she remains unnamed. And the angel of the Lord appears to her and says, you're going to have a son. Now, this is, this is a cycle in Scripture. You've, how many times has God appeared or, or worked through a woman who couldn't have a child to bring about a child? Right? This, is, this is a modus operandi for God. This is the way he likes to, to work. And he says he's going to be a Nazarite, so don't cut his hair. Now, what is a Nazarite? In Leviticus 6, those of you that are real keeners, you want to go home and read Leviticus 6, it talks about what a Nazarite is. A, a Nazarite, you could take a Nazarite vow if you want it. It comes from the Hebrew word Nazir, which means to consecrate or to set apart. So some people, the real keeners, who really want to be consecrated to God, would say, I'm going to take the Nazarite vow, and there were some laws around that. They couldn't cut their hair, they couldn't uh, eat or drink anything that came from a grape. Uh, notice that it says you can't drink any fermented drink from grapes, but some Nazarites said, that just is grapes, I can drink any other fermented thing. If I can get some apple wine, I'll take care of that, right? But th- these were people that were committed. The unique thing in Samson's case is it's not Samson making a decision. It's God saying he will be a Nazarite from birth till the day he dies. He's going to be set apart for me. See, typically it was a sign of someone's devotion. But in this situation, the angel of the Lord is kind of intervening and saying, this guy is going to be the guy that I'll begin to, to, to free Israel from the Philistines. Now, think about that, too. They had been subject to this other people who, who would come in and raid at crop time and steal all their food and go away and do it again year after year. This had been going on for 40 years years. I remember when I was 20, 40 seemed like a really long time. Now that I'm in my 50s, 40s, shorter, but it's still a long time. Imagine living in that for 40 years, and now finally, here's this child who's going to change that. Well, she gets so excited, she runs to tell her husband, and she actually is more like the husband. You know, it's funny, sometimes I'll find out somebody in the church had the baby, they had their baby. They're expecting, I'll hear that. Oh, they had their baby. And I'll call Angela and say, such and such had their baby. And she'll say, what is it? And I'll be like, a baby. <laughs> because in my mind, I have a piece of information. I should have asked, was it a boy or a girl? But why, I already know it's a that's, but She's more like that. She's like, this awesome guy showed up, and I don't know where he came from. I don't even know his name. And, he, and I was like, what do you mean? You didn't ask all the important questions. You know, it's almost a reverse role as far as me and Angela. But Manoah says, what are we going to do? This is great news, but what are we going to do? So he prays, and the angel of the Lord comes again to them, it says. But how does he come to them? By meeting her in the field, and her husband's not there. I love that. And he goes, she says, hey, he's here. So he goes, are you the one? Yes, I am the one. You know, the the awesome-looking one that looks like an angel of God. Uh, And he says in verse 12, "How how do we raise the boy when it comes true? How do we raise him? And then he does the greatest case of not telling him anything new. Did you read that? He didn't tell him how to raise the kid. He says, do what I told you. I told your wife, don't drink any wine, don't cut the kid's hair, but that's about it. She just needs to do what I said. 
And then he says, well, why don't you stay for a while? We'll fix you a young goat. And the angel says, no, no, I'm not going to eat. But if you want to give a goat, offer it as a sacrifice to the Lord. And here's this hint. Manoah didn't realize it was the angel of the Lord. Theologians look at that phrase throughout the Old Testament. And there's a lot of reasons I'm not going to go into, but most of them think what is happening there is actually God coming in a human form. Maybe a pre-New Testament Jesus, the Son of God, in flesh. That's, that's what typically has been understood when they use that phrase, angel of the Lord. And that's why when he ascended in the fire, Manoah realized, I actually saw God. They fall flat on their face, and of course, he's the He's the drama queen. We're going to die. And his wife's like, calm down, honey. I think, if he w- I think if he'd wanted to kill us, he would have done it already. Right? She's got the voice of reason. I, just, I think it's a great story. And then here comes this baby named Samson. His, his name means son. It's, it's a name of power and hope. There's a new dawn coming for the people of Israel. It says the Lord blessed him and the spirit began to stir in him. I love the story. It's just a unique story. Lots of character development, and you, you kind of get to know these people, and you kind of wonder, what, what were they like? You know, what was their marriage like? And, you know, it, just unique. But the key thing I want us to focus in on today is what does this story reveal about God? What, is, what this story reveals about God? Because Scripture is, we call it the revelation of God. That doesn't just mean it's information that God is sharing with us. It means God is revealing himself to us. He's showing us what he's like. And as we trace his interactions with people throughout the Old Testament and New Testament, we begin to get a better picture of who God is. There's several things that you see in this. First thing you see about God is his willingness to engage. Throughout these cycles, the people cry out for help, but by the time you get to Samson, nobody's crying out for help anymore. It doesn't say that at all. It says they've been oppressed for 40 years to the Philistines, and nobody's crying out for help. They've either given up or they've completely forgotten God, And yet God shows up to this nameless woman in the middle of a field. He wants to engage with humanity. One of the things we see about God all through the Bible is he wants to engage with us. Creation, the whole story of creation. There's this beautiful creation. It's all so good, perfect. And what is the Trinity? What does God say within himself? Let us make humanity in our image. Did he need us? No, everything was good. It was all perfect. And yet, the very heart of God is he wants to engage with us. Let's make something else that we can actually live in relationship with. And the whole idea of the incarnation, Jesus coming in the flesh, says God does not stand back. He wants to engage with us. He desires a relationship. And maybe you, know, maybe you don't feel that. Maybe you don't sense that. But it's something that in the story of the Bible we see over and over. And maybe, just maybe today... You're sitting here for the very reason that God wants to engage you. He wants to engage you. He's he's brought you to this weird place. You've sang songs, whatever, you did it, because he wants to engage with you. And maybe you need to slow down long enough for the smoke to clear so you can see that. A nice thing about the way he engages is we also see in the story that his preference is for nobodies. His preference... For the nobodies, the person he comes to, you know, we don't ever learn her name. If you Google, what was Samson's mom's name? Google will tell you her name was the wife of Manoah. That's all we know about her. And it never says her name. And actually, she seems to be the smart one of the bunch. But we never hear her name. 
And I love it because Manoah prays, God, come and clarify, what are we supposed to do? And what does God do? He doesn't come to the man of the house. He meets her in the field again. Right? It's a nobody. That's who he's reaching out to. And that's the whole story of the scripture. Let's, let's see, we've got to get the Philistines later on and we need a king. Let's pick this lowly shepherd boy, the youngest of the bunch, the tiny little guy, and he's the one that's going to fight the giant Goliath. It's, it's, it's Mary and Joseph, the nobodies, the people who don't have anything going for them, so poor, they can barely afford anything, and that's who the Messiah is going to be born to. And then the 12 disciples, right? The biggest, really, some of the biggest losers you've ever met. And God says, those are the guys I want on my team, right? It's like he let the other teams all pick every player and the 12 left over. He said, I'll take these guys. God has a preference for the nobodies. He loves the underdog. Now, doesn't that make, does that make you feel good? It makes me feel great. There was a movie years ago called Cool Runnings. You ever see that movie? See that movie? Loosely, Loosely based, based on the story, the story of the Jamaican, Jamaican bobsled team. Not a lot of great bobsledding places in Jamaica. But I, I love this show because you had these four misfits and they were competing at Calgary, of all places, in the Winter Olympics as bobsledders. And you just find yourself, as the story goes on, you're actually pulling for these guys because you pull for the underdog, right? There's something in us that does that and I think the reason that is is because in some way we all identify with a nobody, I mean, we may be successful, but in our heart of hearts, when we look in the mirror, we feel like, oh, yeah, but this and that. And the beautiful news is, not only does God engage humanity, but he reaches out to the nobodies, to the underdogs. That's the people he's drawn to. Another thing to note here is that he gives knowledge via relationship. You can see the game being played here. Tell, tell me what to do, says Manoah. And what does the angel of the Lord say? Do, t- I already told your wife, do what I told you to do. And Manoah's like, what is your name? Tell me your name so we can honor you. And, and in the best Hebrew, he says, listen, Manoah, you can't handle the truth. He literally says, this name is too wonderful. I can't get, you would never understand the name. I'm not going to tell you who I am. And you know, we human beings like knowledge because it gives us a sense of control. We like to know what's going to happen tomorrow. We like to know what's going to happen this afternoon. We like to have plans because it gives us a sense of control. But what we see happening here is God is not giving Manoah and his wife any more information than they need at that moment. Hey, there's a baby coming. Don't drink any wine. Don't eat unclean food. And when he's born, don't cut his hair. He's giving knowledge via a relationship. See, God tends to operate in ways that tell us what we need to know when we need to know it. And and far too often we viewed the spiritual life as this quest for answers. We want to have all the answers. We want to understand. We want to grasp it. We want to be able to put it all together. That's not the spiritual life. Spiritual life is a relationship where you live in a relationship with God and he reveals things to you as you walk with him. I, I, I was talking about this a bit in Sunday school this morning. But I remember when I was growing up, I heard a guy say, and he's a lovely guy and well-intended, but he held up the Bible and he says, this book has the question to every answer you will ever need answered in your life. Has the answer to every question you will ever need. Yeah. See, God uses nobodies. That's, that's a good example right there. He held up the Bible. He says, this book has the answer to every question you will ever need answered in your life. 
And as I grew older, I have come to the conclusion that he had never read that book. Because you know what? The Bible is a lot of things, and I believe it's the Word of God, but it does not answer every single question I have. I have a lot of questions that I'm still scratching my head about. But the point is, I sometimes want knowledge as a way to control. I want the answer. And God says, I don't want to give you the answer. I've told you enough. Now just walk with me. And over time, he reveals stuff to me. The Bible is a reminder of who God is so we can live in a relationship with him, and he will tell us what we need to know as we need to know it. It leads us in this relationship of trust, and it gives us knowledge as we walk in relationship. Finally, it's okay that he does it that way because God plays the long game. He's waited for 40 years for Samson to be born. And this is the seventh cycle of the judges. He'll wait for Samson to grow up before he deals with the Philistines. See, God's not rushed like we're rushed. He, he plays this long, long game. Some of you have got situations and you're like, God, when are you ever going to do anything? God plays the long game. I mean, he waited 1,800 years from Abraham to get to Jesus, who was promised as a descendant to Abraham. He's waited 2,000 more years and he still hasn't returned yet to make all things new. He plays the long game. It fits into one big picture. And that picture is that God reaches out to humanity because he wants to engage with us. And he doesn't choose people based on their gifting or their skills. He chooses people based on their need, the nobodies. And then he walks with them, teaching them the spiritual life as they go, giving them the answers when they need it, not when they think they need it. And part of that long game has come all the way from Samson down to you and I here today. Maybe you're here, I said that, because he's, he wants to engage you. And the question you need to ask yourself about this text as we wrap up is, who am I in this story? Who am I? You know, just as we said last week, when we see God clearly, we get to see some of who we are. It exposes who we are. So in light of who we see God to be in the story of Samson's parents and the announcement of his birth, who are we? Well, there's two kind of examples. One is like Manoah, grasping for knowledge to control. Now, I find that there are a lot of people, and myself many times have been this way, that is the way I approach life. I want to know so I feel comfortable and in charge. And that can manifest in the spiritual life two ways. One can be that you've had a bad experience or you've seen faith in the past and you've taken that knowledge and you're like, not for me, I'm done. You've grasped that knowledge and you've decided I'm going to reject it all based on what somebody did or what you thought or an experience you had and you've rejected it. You're grasping for knowledge because you want to be in control of the situation. That's one way it can manifest. Another way, more spiritual people who are already in the church, (laughs) we decide, I'm going to grasp for knowledge because I don't want to actually interact with God because he might deal with me. He might change something about me. I'd much rather him be a theological concept or a bunch of ideas or a list of do's and don'ts. I'd rather have the knowledge so I feel in control. See, that's what Manoah's doing. He's trying to get more and more knowledge because he's trying to control the situation. It's a little scary. This is unusual. We don't really know what this is. But Jesus, right before he ascends to heaven in Acts chapter 1, there's this great interaction with his disciples in Acts chapter 1, 6 to 8. 
And, and it starts with the Manoah aspect, right? Jesus is resurrected. They're standing with him. And in Acts 1, 6 and 7, it says, They gathered around him and asked, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It's not for you to know the date, times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. That's how it starts. They've, they've seen the resurrected Jesus. They're amazed. But what do they want? We need to know. I want to know, is this now? Now are you going to be the king? Now is the kingdom coming? And he doesn't even say no. He doesn't say yes. He doesn't say no. He says it's not for you to know that. You don't need to know what I'm doing. Isn't that, that that's the Manoah complex. We want to know because then we feel like we have some sense of control. He doesn't tell the disciples what he's doing. He doesn't tell them that at all. It's not for you to know this stuff. I've not called you to know everything, he says. I've called you to walk in a relationship with me. And if you've rejected that relationship for either one of those reasons, either you've seen it done really poorly and you've like, that's enough, been there, done that, not doing that, or you just don't want him to engage with you too close because you're afraid of what God might ask of you, if that's where you are today, God's saying, don't do that. And Jesus says to the disciples right after that, he, he, he moves on to receiving and sharing in relationship. And that's what we see in the wife of Manoah, in Samson's mom. This ability to not know everything, but to be willing to trust and engage and move forward, right? She's not trying to control the situation. She's not asking for a name or credentials. She's just hearing what God says, and then she goes and tells the story to Manoah. You won't believe this guy showed up. He said, I'm going to have a baby. She's receiving the truth and being a witness. See, there's two, two parallels there. Are we going to grasp for knowledge so that we can control in our relationship with God? Or are we going to let him engage us in whatever way he sees fit and trust that tomorrow when I need to know something, he'll make it clear to me? If, if he's not doing what I think he should do, can I wait? Because he's playing the long game. See, he says to the disciples right after those verses in Acts 1, 6, and 7, and in verse 8 he says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. There's that relationship. You guys, you're not, you don't need to know what's happening because I'm going to live inside of you. You will receive power after the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will what? You'll be my witnesses. He doesn't say you'll be my teachers. He doesn't say you'll be my salesmen. He says you're going to go tell people what's happened to you. That's what a witness does. In Jerusalem, in Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. See, so the question for us today is, are we going to just grab knowledge to be in control to keep God at a distance, because that's what happens. When you have to know, the knowledge itself becomes the object that you love and not the person. When you have to know. How many of you have ever felt like somebody came to you and you were important to them as long as you had the information they needed, but as soon as they got that information, you didn't matter anymore? We've all felt that way. So many of us approach God that way in the spiritual life. I want the knowledge. Okay, I got it. Now I can go run my life. And God says, it's not about, I mean, he will teach. I'm not saying reject knowledge. But realize it's knowledge that's given in a relationship. And your role is not to understand everything. Your role is to witness to God's presence in your life. You see, I've, I've spent 44 years since the time I became a Christian, in one way or another, sitting in church and studying, and sometimes I've been very intensive in study, trying to understand and know the truth about God. The older I get, the less I know. The things I know, I know for sure. But 30 years ago, I thought I knew a lot more than I know. Right? 
And what God is saying to me is, you know less, but you're convinced of these things because you've, you've gotten that truth via a relationship with me. And the other stuff you're willing to wait on to figure it out. I do know that God's walking with me and that he gives me what I need when I need it, not when I think I need it, but when I actually do need it. And I also know that I'm a pretty good example of a nobody that God picked because he wanted to engage. And I would say to you, maybe you're one of those people too. And if, if, you know, today, if you've never made a commitment to Jesus, if you've never realized, I want to know you. I want to live in that relationship. This would be a day for you to start that, to say, you know what? I do want knowledge, but I'm willing to live in a relationship with you first. And for those of us that, that have entered that relationship, let's relax and walk in trust. Let's not have to have a firm conclusion on things we don't know about. Let's not sweat it. Let's trust that God will reveal as we walk in relationship with him, that God will reveal what we need to know as we need to know it. That's what he does. That's how the spirit works. Let's pray. God, thank you for this fascinating story of these people who I really wish I could have just sat around the fire with them and listened to them talk to each other. And how you chose them to be used in Samson's life, and I'm sure that was a life full of heartache as his parents, celebration, joy. And yet you were, you were doing something there, God. And we, we believe that you are doing something here. We see your scripture says that one day you will make all things new, that you've promised to do that, and that includes us. And there are times when we can't really understand how that looks, how it plays out. But we want to be on that journey with you and we want to trust that you will give us what we need when we need it. And God, if there's anyone here today who's never committed their life to you, who's never just said, yes, I want to follow, I want to accept that forgiveness, I just pray, God, that you would open their heart to your desire to engage with them, to your hunger to know them and walk with them for the rest of their lives. Make them aware of that and help them to respond today. God, we, we love you. We want to walk as people in a trusting relationship with you, guide us and teach us what that looks like. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, there you did it. You went and said it. You just said you'll follow. You didn't realize we tricked you into doing that by making you sing. But that's what you said. That's a beautiful song to end with because where you go, I'll go. Where you stay, I'll stay. When you stay, I'll stay. The interesting thing, if this life I lose, I will follow you because you know what? He's got you. And I, I guess... If, if nothing else, I can just say this. When, when Manoa's wife, we're going to call her Susie. That's my new name for her. When Susie got up that morning and went to the field, she was not expecting God to engage with her, but he did. He did in a really concrete, tangible way that she could have tried to ignore or run away from, but she engaged it. So as you leave today, God is going to engage you maybe in ways you don't expect, but I would just say pray that God will open your eyes and your ears and your heart to the ways he wants to engage you this week. Amen.